Now, if it sounds kind of like they just got married, they kind of did. Um, it's kind of what membership really is like. It's this covenantal relationship that we have with one another, that, that we celebrate each other, that we celebrate the good and the bad and everything in between. And so um, that's what membership is supposed to be. Uh, this morning, as we continue our series, this is the last of three-part series that we've looked at. And if you've missed the other two, you can find them online or you can just pretend like you were here and don't worry about it, uh, whichever one you prefer. But we've been talking about this idea of contentment versus envy, like how, how do these two things coexist? And the reality is they can't really coexist in our lives. Because if we have one, we often can't have the other. And envy, we, I could ask this question, it's kind of a rhetorical question, have you ever envied someone else or what they have? And the reality is probably for all of us, we've envied someone else and, and something they had or, or some aspect of their life. And envy, we, we talked about is this idea how, how it's really a heart issue. It's a matter of our heart. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of what has our affection. At the same time, we talked last week from Ecclesiastes 2, and Solomon talks to us about how, how he searched for everything under the sun and found that none of the pleasures of the world, he held back nothing from himself, and that he never found fulfillment or contentment. It all left him wanting more. And so some of us today, we, we find envy in our lives in different ways. Maybe we're envious of our neighbor because their yard's better than ours. Maybe we're envious of someone because their spouse is better looking than our spouse, or their kids are smarter than our kids, or maybe their house is bigger than ours, or maybe you're envious when you drive by certain car dealerships and you see certain cars and you think, ooh, anyone who drives that, I wish I had that car. And those are things we kind of joke about a little bit, but the reality is envy kind of seeps into other areas of our lives. It sometimes goes past paychecks and homes and cars and objects. And sometimes it enters into different places. So I have to be honest with you. I, those are things that I may say, well, that's a nice house or that's a nice car. But those things don't really cause envy in my life so much as when I was younger. Uh, there was an aspect of my life that I really struggled with. See, I was always envious of my friends or acquaintances from school who, who lived in ways that we would say they, they partied pretty hard. And uh, I was always brought up in this home that was taught that you should, you know, follow God's laws and you should be wary of sin and you should stay away from those things. I still think that's good. But I struggled because I would watch friends of mine and people I went to school with in high school and college, and they would live in ways that I knew God didn't desire for any of us to live. I knew they were supposed to lead to brokenness and all kinds of other things, but I didn't see any of those results in their lives. In fact, they sure looked like they were having lots of fun. The reality is, I think sin is really fun. If it wasn't fun, none of us would want to do it. But it doesn't mean there aren't consequences for that, but I didn't see any of those consequences then. In fact, what I saw was these same people that were living lives that we might phrase as partying or as the scriptures sometimes talk about drunkenness and debauchery, I would see kinds of things and think, well, it doesn't look so bad. It looks like it's okay. In fact, those were the kids getting the good scholarships, good jobs, they had nicer cars than, my, than I did. The list goes on and on and on. Not only were they having fun, but their stuff was better than my stuff. It's kind of depressing. Right? You ever found yourself there where you just see what other people have and just, they can do all that? See, the reality for me is I, I overcame kind of that envy I had, and it, and it wasn't because I started... <laughs> indulging in everything their life offered, but what I began to recognize is that, that I found contentment in who I was and what I was doing and the life I was living, and I should have been there the whole time. 
The reality was when I look back on it now, it wasn't that I wasn't happy or didn't have a good time or didn't enjoy my life. It was just that I thought someone else might be happier than me, and so I was envious of that. Now, have you ever been there where you're envious of someone else in such a way that has less to do with what they have and more to do with what seems to be happening in their life? Like, here's what I mean. Maybe you, you see that person who always gets that promotion, or whenever they do something they shouldn't do, the results just seem to be great. Like they fail and it results in reward. They live totally unethical or immoral lives and yet they get rewarded in every aspect of life and you just look at it and go, why not me? I mean, I'm trying and they're getting the good stuff. Why, why do I get stuck with this on the other side? Or maybe even a more difficult situation is when someone we love or us personally, when we have massive health issues, or we lose someone we love and care about, we say, ha, this person loved Jesus. This person tried so hard to follow after God, and yet, look what it got him. And then you pick up the cover of any Forbes magazine or any celebrity gossip magazine, and you see a person who's living in ways that, that even people who don't know who Jesus is, think, eh, I don't know that you should probably be doing those things. And they're being rewarded. They're like on the Forbes top 10 list or they're, they're in the cover of every fitness magazine or whatever it is. And you think, well, God, what is following you actually get me? What did it get them? Maybe we've lost a child or a brother or a sister or a parent or a loved one. And we said, well, they tried to follow God with their life. And what did it bring them? Nothing. Like Nothing. They got nothing out of it. See, so often we find ourselves frustrated. Frustrated because this doesn't lead us to places of contentment. It leads us to more and more envy. We look more and more around and we find what's going on and we say, well, why not me? Why don't I get the rewards? See, the Bible is full of all kinds of stories. We talked some last week about how how we can look at the stories in the scriptures and how it's written not like as one book to be read front to back and now how it's written as one kind of genre of literature, but, but it's written in like different sections. So the first five books is what we call the, the Torah or the law. Like it's about the ways we can live in right relationship with God. There's sections that we call in the New Testament the Gospels or the Good News. That's, they're the books about Jesus and his life. Then there's, there's a section we call the Acts of the Apostles, and it just tells the story of the early church. And then there's, there's all these letters in the New Testament in which we, we read about these notes sent to different churches saying, hey, live into this kind of way because this is how God's inviting us to live. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus and to live this out. And there's other sections of scriptures. There's lamentations with just laments and grief and suffering, and crying out. There's wisdom literature, which we talked a little bit last week, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And then there's the Psalms. And the Psalms are a mixture of poetic, they're music, but 75% of the Psalms are laments. They're the outpouring of mourning and grief and suffering. They're the epitome of seeing humanity in the scriptures. It's, it's where the authors, the psalmists, they come through in the writings and it's this cry out to God in the midst of whatever's going on in their lives. Sometimes they're full of celebration because of what's happening. Other times they're full of this frustration with God. Where are you? 
Why aren't you near? Why don't you care about us anymore? They're the epitome of the humanness in the scriptures. The authors come through the situations of their lives, and what we find is we often underestimate God's ability to accept our anger. We assume that if we're angry with God, if we're frustrated with God, that God can't take it. We've made God too small. We, we think God can't take our frustrations and our hurts and our angers. And what we see in the Psalms, they're not some great theology for us to understand. That's not what the Psalms are. I'm starting to learn that the Psalms are just the cries of people and their prayers. They're songs like we just sang a few moments ago. Are people crying out to God saying, God, I need you to be near in my life. I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't know what's going on around me. My, I've lost a child. My marriage is falling apart. I'm broke. I have a job. God, where are you when this stuff hits my life? Psalms or prayers, laments, frustrations, anger. So today we're going to look at Psalm 73, and as we look at this psalm, you can turn in your Bibles, and if you want to stand with me as we begin to, to look at it and to read it in just a moment, um, Psalm 73 really is the epitome of an author sharing their frustrations with God and what they see all around them. And here's what uh, the writer of Psalm 73 writes. Psalm 73 verse 1 says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God, that I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. See, Psalm 73 is attributed as one of the, the 50 psalms to Asaph. And Asaph was a, was a musician. He was a music writer. He was a singer. He worked both for King David and for King Solomon. And so he... 
Whether, whether he wrote this psalm or whether he recorded the words of David is not the point. We're not really sure because they're kind of all attributed to him and to David as well or to Solomon. My assumption, though, is Asaph wrote this one because it's, it's kind of this overflow, this crying out of, of someone who looks around them and sees all these people who are living in ways that are counter to what God desires, and yet their bank account keeps getting bigger. They're thought more and more highly of by certain people. They're rewarded over and over again for living in ways that are counter to what God invites his people into. It's this frustration that we sometimes have, like, well, what's the thing, God, if, if this is the result I get? And nothing good is coming in my life. Nothing is coming the way I hope for it. It's, it's the depth of the human heart's longing and desire and frustration about what they see over and over again. The psalmist is pointing out um, the epitome of envy. Now look at what they have. Look at what they do. I mean, do you see this? God, where are you in the middle of this? Well, we could talk about the fact that this is missing the whole idea of, of God is called to be judged, not us. We, we could talk about all different kinds of things in the midst of this text. Um, but the point is, this, this is full of, of frustration, anger, and hurt. He's envious of those whose lives should be leading to destruction, but all they're receiving is blessing over and over again. And this is the problem for us. As we've so often just defined blessing in the wrong way. We'll get to that in just a few minutes, but what we see in this text is, is how come how come their kids are going to the great colleges? How come my kid failed third grade? How come their husband or wife looks like a swimsuit model in mine? Well, I mean, take your pick. This is what what, what's going on here? This guy's just frustrated about everything in his life and saying, well, look at their life. Look at how much better theirs is than mine. And yet in the middle of all this, there's this realization that comes. He recognizes how he got into this temptation, how he found himself there. At the same time, he recognizes how he came out of this temptation. He began to recognize that there was something about the presence of God in the middle of his frustration, in the middle of his envy, God was still near to him. Ola Brueggemann is one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, and he writes this about this passage. He says, The Old Testament clearly offers no explanation for the inexplicable reality of suffering and no antidote for it. Rather, the Scripture offers a recontextualization whereby suffering is situated in relationship with God. And in the end, the relationship itself is the be-all and end-all of faith. The more powerful truth of fidelity reconstitutes suffering as meaningful. In other words, I'll rephrase that for those of us who need it in different language. If you come to know God, you'll find that regardless of circumstances, his presence becomes powerful in our lives. He never promises there won't be suffering. In fact, he probably promises the opposite, that there will be suffering. But in relationship with him, You'll find contentment in the middle of all of it. Regardless of what comes, that God will be present with you, that you'll begin to recognize that your hope isn't found in the things you have or the things you can do or the things you wish you could do or the things that others are doing, but your hope is found in the one who is the redeemer of all. Your hope in this life and in the life to come is the one who, 
who's the creator of all, who's over all, who's in the midst of all, and he gives you hope regardless of circumstances. And so I want to reread Psalm 73 um, in a different way. I want to read it from the message because I think it, um, I think Eugene Peterson does a great job of resummarizing it for us in a way that's helpful. And so here's the way he writes this psalm. No doubt about it, God is good. Good to good people, good to the good-hearted, but I nearly missed it. Missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have made it, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. Pretentious with arrogance, they wear the latest fashions in violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness, they jeer using words to kill, they bully their way with words, they're full of hot air, and I'm not talking about politicians, although it would work, loudmouths disturbing the peace, People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made. Piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I'd have given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. Slippery road they're on with the final crash in a ditch of delusions and the blink of an eye disaster, a blind curve in the dark and nightmare. We wake up and rub our, eyes, uh, rub our, our, our eyes, nothing. There's nothing to them. And I never was. When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox. In your very presence, I'm still in your presence. But you've taken my hand. You wisely and tenderly lead me, and then you bless me. You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. Look, those who left you are falling apart. Deserters, they'll never be heard from again. But I'm in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I've made Lord God my home. God, I'm telling the world what you do. See, what Eugene Peterson recaptures in that translation of his is that, yeah, sometimes it seems like everything is going great for everyone else but us. And maybe it is. But what God wants us to know and what the psalmist so desperately wants to get out is in the midst of all that, God comes to us. He welcomes our frustration. He welcomes our anger. He welcomes our hurt, our lack of understanding. He welcomes it and he says, that's okay. I get it. You don't understand it all. And frankly, I never expected you to. I expect you to learn to trust me in the middle of it all. The problem for us is that we read this and we think, well, then what's the point, Right? If I can live however I want to live, then, then why does it matter? And, and I think we need to be reminded of what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5. There's this section of scripture when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what we miss in that text sometimes, because we can't get past that line, and frankly, I understand why. What he says next is this. He says, well, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous the same. The problem for us is we've attributed God's blessing to monetary things. 
or to our health. We assume that if I'm healthy, that God's blessed me. We assume if I'm rich, God's blessed me. Frankly, nowhere in the scriptures will you find that. In fact, the crazy thing is Jesus says, hey, come and die and find new life. Give up your life, lose it for my sake, and I'll give you new life, abundant life, life that's beyond what you can imagine. It's the, it's the conundrum of the scriptures. It doesn't make sense, but it does. I mean, it makes total sense. Give up your life and find new life. At the same time, that makes no sense, right? Lay down your life only to find it? I, I, what? What we find in this is that blessing isn't money. I remember um, being relatively newly married, and I remember there was a couple we were friends with, and, and their house was probably the twice the size of our house, and they drove cars that were probably a little nicer than our cars, and, and they had jobs that probably paid about the same as ours. And I remember thinking, how do they do this? And I thought, well, maybe if we don't pay tithe, you know, maybe if we're not generous, maybe if that's how you live, then, then you can find a way to do some of these other things. If you can begin to live into that kind of system. I'm sure you, we can do that. But I was reminded again this week how generosity works in our lives, how if we just think God's blessing is money, we've missed it. And so someone came in and handed me a check for $12,000 and just said, hey, we, we want to use this to do something great for our church in some way. No idea what it's going to go towards, but, but we got a check for that. See, we miss the way God blesses because we're looking in the wrong direction. We miss God's blessing because we expect it to be in some way we never understand. We miss God's blessing because we have missed Jesus' invitation to this new life. It's something that Paul understood. It's why Paul could say, hey, I've been beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, logged, run out of town, imprisoned. And we'll read in just a few moments from Philippians chapter 4 where Paul found contentment in the middle of that. But I want to read the story of Polycarp. It's the oldest um, story of a martyr not found in Scripture. And here's what it says about Polycarp. The whole multitude, marveling at the bravery of the God-loving and God-fearing race of Christians, began shouting, Away with the atheist! Find Polycarp! Polycarp entered the stadium. The proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, Have respect for your age, and other such things as they are accustomed to say. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent, say, Away with the atheists! They called Christians atheists in that day. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were in the stadium, motioned toward them with his hand, and then, groaning as he looked up to heaven, said, Away with the atheists. When the magistrate persisted and said, Swear the oath, and I will release you. Revile Christ, Polycarp replied, For eighty-six years I have been his servant. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I am a Christian. Polycarp was then burned at the stake for his faith. He prayed a prayer before the fire was lit that he would become an acceptable sacrifice for Christ. When the fire was lit, the account of his martyrdom states that the aroma of his death was like bread baking or like gold and silver being refined in a furnace. And standing up for Christ, Polycarp became the embodiment of the living bread. What we find is that this doesn't make any sense. Give up your life only to find it. Find contentment no matter the circumstances. See, Polycarp's easy to get because he was 86 years old, right? He was an old man. In every culture, 86 is old. There is no culture where 86 is considered young. 
None. You say, well, he's lived a long life. It's, you know, he's going to die anyway. What's the big deal? But then the struggle for us is we think, well, what about the Kevin Polenkos who aren't that old? What about the child we lost? That sibling that we watched get buried? That parent who died too young? What about that suffering? What about those moments? See, we know what to do when they're old. We say, well, you know, they're old. And even old people go, well, we're old. But we don't know what to do when they're not. We don't know what to do with the hurt is so deep and so fresh and so raw. But the fascinating thing is the Kevin Polinkos and the Polycarps and the Apostle Pauls are the ones who have peace in the middle of that. That's why Paul wrote these words in Philippians chapter 4. He said, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. And we joked about how that's the most misquoted verse in all the New Testament. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It is the most misquoted. But what we find in this is it's the hope for us. Paul says it's the secret I found, but it's a secret that really isn't a secret. The secret is this, that if you come to know Jesus, he'll set your life right. Paul was at one point in his life rich. He's now in prison. He's been beaten, flogged, abused, stoned, left for dead, run out of town. And he says, hey, my life is radically defined by love. I have contentment regardless of the circumstances. Whether I'm starving or whether I'm full whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor. And the secret to all of that, the strength that I have in this life comes from the one who is the giver of strength. I mean, it makes no sense at all that somehow through the death and the resurrection of Jesus we find new life. I mean, a guy died and we find hope in that, but hope isn't in the death, but the hope is in the new life. That somehow through an empty tomb, through an empty grave, Death no longer held dominion, that sin no longer reigned, that somehow God came to earth in flesh, and through that we're to find hope. I know it's the hardest story to understand. At the same time, it's the easiest story to understand. It is full of hope from beginning to end. That God comes to us just like he comes to the psalmist. He says, I hear your envy. I hear your hurt, I hear your anger, I hear your frustration, but know this, I am with you. What we see in Jesus is that God comes in the form of flesh. God can handle our suffering and our anger, our lamenting, our mourning, our grief. And he comes and he says, I am near to you. So that when our soul longs for something more, that we find ourselves seeking after all kinds of things to find contentment. When we're envious and we try to follow through in those envies, whatever they lead, and we find that we still want more and more and more, God says to us, I am the longing of your soul's desire, of your heart. I am the fulfillment of all you're searching for. If you will come to me, you will find rest, rest that gives peace, peace that is everlasting, peace that makes no sense, peace that is so simple that we come to a table and we eat a piece of bread and we drink some juice and we say, well, I don't get it, but it's some part of us we do. 
that God's kingdom breaks into our lives here and now. And so in the midst of our suffering, we find hope. In the midst of our brokenness, we know that regardless of circumstances, we can find contentment. This meal that we're going to take in just a few few moments reminds us that heaven breaks in. The heaven comes to us. That God is redeeming and restoring all that that is broken in this life. It's a reminder to us that God comes near and says, I am yours and you are mine. And the secret to contentment in our life isn't, isn't more stuff. It isn't what our neighbor has. It isn't a promotion. It isn't more money. And, and those are all good things, possibly. Your neighbor's stuff, not so much, but a promotion or more money, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I want to remind you again that complacency and contentment are not the same thing. But contentment, true contentment, is found in knowing Jesus. It's a secret that Paul tells us about that really isn't that much of a secret. So I'm going to invite the praise team to come. In just a moment, we're going to invite others to come, and we're going to partake of these elements in just a moment. These elements that are just a little bit of juice and a little piece of bread, not even good-tasting bread. It's really bad-tasting bread. It's stale but it's a reminder to us that even this simplistic meal, this, this simple little bit of juice and bread, the message of Jesus is simple and it's hard to understand it all at the same time. But it's this message that Jesus comes to us in the form of us as a human. It's God in flesh, which is beyond our comprehension most of the time. God comes to us and says, I want to know you and I want you to know me and I want you to find contentment in the midst of life, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's going on. So this morning, if you come to this table, what you're saying when you take this bread and you take this cup is that, God, I'm yours and you're mine and I want to find true contentment in my life and the hope that I have is found in you and not the circumstances of my life. We come to this table as a way of repentance and confessing to God, I need you. And sometimes that confession needs to be to one another, to someone in particular that we, we've wronged in some way. We need to say to them, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Other times we come to the table and we say, God, I, I've kind of been living in ways counter to what you call me to. But as I take this element this morning, as I eat this bread and I drink this cup, may I know that you have come to me. I know that this is your grace for me. I know that this is the way that you say through your son that I love you. And this meal is a moment in which heaven comes into the earth here and now. So this morning as we take these elements, you'll come and you'll get them and you'll go to your seat and we'll eat them together. We do them as a reminder that God's grace and love is for each of us. Father, we help us this morning um, as we prepare to take these elements as we prepare to to celebrate what you have done through the death and the resurrection of your son, as we begin to recognize that true contentment is found not in what we have or what we can gain or in our wealth or in our health, but true contentment is found only in knowing you as Lord. Because somehow through Paul and Polycarp and Kevin and others that we know, that not even death could take away our hope. That somehow there's a God who's big enough that he takes our anger and our frustration and he says, I hear you, I know, and I'm near to you. 
It's so hard for us to understand that you never promise us health or prosperity, but what you do promise is your presence. And through Jesus, you somehow tell us over and over again that if we'll really come to know you, that you'll satisfy our soul's longing for something more in our life, that you'll bring true contentment. In which envy or sin or brokenness knows nothing. But that hope can reign in our lives. So as we prepare to take these elements, may you remind us of the grace that defines you. May that grace define us. As we take these elements, may they remind us of your love and may that love define us as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name.